morning, everybody. My name is Tony, and I'm the lead pastor here at Gateway. Today, we're going to continue and finish up the giant book of 2 John. All 13 verses of 2 John. Now, I know some of you went back to your other Christian friends that go to other churches, and you're like, does he know we're in a pandemic? And that the world's burning down, and he pulls 2 John out of his back pocket, right? 2 John. Who preaches on 2 John? It's a tiny little book. Uh, John has a few little points in there. But I got to tell you, and I hope last week you found the sermon helpful for you um, as I dealt with truth and love. Um, just a quick review last week. John uses the word truth five times in the first five verses. Now, when you're reading your Bible, and I've told this to you many times, and you see a word used that many times in such a short period of time, such a small amount of verses, it's a big deal. It's a major theme. It is what John is trying to prove. So he's talking about truth. But then he also uses five times in the first six verses the word love. And he ties truth and love together. And he weaves these things together, truth and love. And something that is critical, it's, it's a point that is so important for the Jesus community to know. Why? Because it's the love and truth together that makes us different than any other organization, any other group, any other political party, any other truth-sayer, anything else. The thing that makes us different is that our truth is a person bound in love, and that is what we are bound to. Truth and love. And I talked to you uh, about grace, mercy, and peace, and how John goes on, and he kind of implies that when there's truth, who is Jesus, and the people love one another in the truth, that grace, mercy, and peace are present in that community. And it is a force to be reckoned with. It is a force that you cannot stop. No pandemic can stop it. Just because we're not meeting normally doesn't mean the church stops because we are a community bound to the truth and love. And I talked about Black Lives Matter. And I talked about Blue Lives Matter. And I talked about All Lives Matter. And I talked about the political parties and all the ideas and everyone wants a voice in your life. And here's the challenge is that what they say isn't necessarily a falsehood. All lives do matter. There is injustice in our world. There is oppression in our world. There is evil in our world. There is wrong in our world. The difference is without love Truth becomes a weapon and dangerous to a community. Even within the Christian community, people beat one another up with truth. And love doesn't exist in the middle of that. And it becomes dangerous. Maybe you've been on the end, receiving end of that. Yes, it might be true, but it doesn't do anything to bring you back into a loving Love doesn't exist with the truth. Truth without love becomes a dangerous weapon. Truth for a Jesus follower 
Truth for a Jesus-centered community is not this idea or ideology or political statement. It's not found in a declaration of independence. It's not found in a constitution. Truth is personal. And if we know our constitution better than we know our Bibles, Christians, it's not good. We should be about the Lord's business. So yeah, I kind of got a little close last week. But this week, John moves from this idea of truth and love and loving one another to the community to guard the truth. To guard it. He wanted to protect the community of faith from not outsiders, but people within who were teaching wrong theology. Wrong ideas about Jesus. Heresies. He was talking about heresy. Yes, we have to love one another. But John would tell us there's no place in the community of faith for heresy, particularly errors about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, and most of us might think heresies have been chased out of the church, right? I mean, didn't all this stuff happen in the first, second, third, fourth century? I mean, all these heresies popped up, and, and uh, you had people like, you know, um, all the early church fathers who wrote about these heresies, and you had these ecumenical councils, and many are getting geeked out right now in the Bible. Uh, you know, and they came up with the Apostles' Creed, and then the Nicene Creed, and, and you have all these creeds. Didn't we hash all this out 2,000 years ago? There aren't heresies today, right? This may make some people mad. The Mormon church is a heresy. Because they've added to the scripture. And they've taken away from the scripture. They've changed the orthodox view of the person of Jesus, and they have a different idea. Things that we've hashed out. They're not an orthodox Christian. Jehovah's Witness is a cult of sort because they added to the text of Scripture. They walked away from the councils of Nicaea and the ecumenical councils that hashed out our creeds as a Christian faith from our apostolic. They walked away from those. They added to them and they take it away. And in that, that definition makes it a heresy. Heresies were all over the place in the first and second century of the church. And it made sense. Before we go any further, I warned the worship team today, today's going to be a little geek out session. It's a weird message because I'm talking about heresies. And everybody's like, half the people online just shut, shut it down. You know, they're like, uh, you know. And so I promise you at the end, hopefully this will be inspirational for you. But today's a teaching lesson because this is what John is doing. The genre of the second John letter is teaching, exhortation. And so I'm going to teach you what John is teaching his church because it's very important for us today to understand this. In that first century, it makes sense that they had heresy because Jesus had just come. He had his apostles.
He charged his apostles with the truth. And then Jesus went back to heaven. And once Jesus went back to heaven, you started to see churches pop up. And within those churches, people would come to the faith, the true faith, the apostolic faith. And then they would begin to get other ideas about Jesus and other ideas about And here's the hard part. These were Jesus-loving people. These were Christians from within the church who simply were trying to make sense of the Incarnation. So what do you mean by Incarnation? The human God person of Jesus. And so all these different ideas popped up. Almost every New Testament epistle deals with a heresy. Indirectly or directly, almost every New Testament epistle deals with a heresy. And this is the difficult part, as I said. These people who drink up these ideas and theologies were church people who simply didn't stick to the truth. Who simply it wasn't good enough to just believe, but they had to try to explain it in a way that took them down a road away from the teachings of the apostles. I wrote down a few. I knew you all are geeking out on this stuff, right? So you're wanting to write these down. So I, I went back to my old theology books and I looked up some uh, some of the popular heresies of the day. Maybe you've heard of these. Here's the first one. Adoptionism. This is a heresy. They couldn't understand how God would become flesh. They couldn't understand the virgin birth. They couldn't understand the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. That whole story in Matthew. They couldn't understand this, so they created this heresy called adoptionism. This heresy says that Jesus was born a full human without divinity. That Mary and Joseph came together. You know what I'm talking about, right? They came together. They had this son named Jesus. And here's the deal. Then God simply adopted him and made him divine. That's the adoption. Then there's the Arianism. Maybe you've heard of this one. This was a big one, the Arianism uh, heresy. This idea, Arian had, he wrote a lot about it, tried to get it to take hold in the church, but this was that Jesus was a lesser created being and not really divine. That Jesus was born, but he was kind of above human, but he wasn't God because in their minds they couldn't understand how could God become flesh? And here's the big thing. They couldn't understand how God become flesh because flesh suffers. Flesh is tempted. Flesh is weak. How can God become flesh? And so then you get the ghost of him. This is an idea that Jesus was divine, but only seemed to be human. See how they're going back and forth? He's either got to be all divine or all human, but he can't be both. So this one says, well, Jesus is divine. He truly was born God, but God kind of put a mask over all of our He, he kind of smoked and mirrored it on us, and he's not really human. And this is important. I know what your mind is thinking right now. What in the world does this have anything to do with my faith? What does that have anything to do with the church? Why am I talking about this stuff? I'm going to get there in a minute. Over 
John, in his letters, fought against it like crazy. All the apostles fought against it. This was this dualistic idea of good and bad. How could God become flesh? Because flesh is evil. They had this, the, the Gnostics believed that they had this special knowledge of salvation, that what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught about free salvation and the person of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that grace was unmerited. They just couldn't buy into that. So they had this idea that their, their knowledge was special. And so the spiritual is good, but the physical is bad, and that's why they actually rejected the fact that Christ came in the flesh. How could he come in a fleshly body? Fleshly bodies are sinful, so he only appears to come in the flesh. He's not really flesh. And there's this idea of Gnosticism that you need a deeper meaning. They go beyond the simple gospel teachings of Jesus, that you simply need to believe in me and the work that I do on the cross and the, and the salvation that you receive from my resurrection. That you simply need to believe and follow me. They go beyond that and say, well, that's cool and nice, but it just isn't complicated enough for us, so we're going to have this special knowledge. No idea what it was. You just kind of fell into it if you follow their way. That was the Gnostics. And then they were fighting with modalism. This is a good one. Anybody ever try to describe the Trinity to someone? Oh, come on. Can you talk about the Trinity? Anybody know what I'm talking about the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, you have man. You try to explain. That's the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Try to explain the Trinity. I mean, it's one God in three persons, one essence, one God, three persons. The Father's in heaven, the Son was on earth, blah, 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 and it's just your mind is like that. Right? So the modal people thought of this idea that, well, God is one person in three modes. Sometimes he takes the form of the Father, sometimes he takes the form of the Son, and sometimes he takes the form of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes here with us, the Son ceases to exist. It's the same person taking on a different form. And then you've got subordination. Y'all geeking out on this stuff? This is awesome. You know, I remember my, my uh, test cards. I had stacks of them like this. Remember that many, uh, you know, Paris? I had stacks like this. I had to memorize all of these. And who's doing that right now? Subordination is a Missouri Court point. These people believe that the Son is lesser than the Father. I mean, isn't the Father above the Son? And so they think that the Son is lesser than the Father in essence and in attributes. The Son is just not. The Father is like it, which denies the fact that they are one God. And then you got tritheism. The Trinity is really three separate gods. Orthodoxy Christian totally doesn't believe this. He's always taught that there's, we've always been taught there's one God and three persons. Now you may not recognize any of these official names, but I promise you, some of these philosophies and ideas creep into our churches, into our Bible studies, into our homes, 
John doesn't name these specifically, but he does go into two very, you take all of these heresies, they really revolve around a couple of big things. The first one is this, the humanity and divinity of the person of Jesus. You may be saying, well, yes, God is not, why is this important? I'll get to that in just a minute. And the second one is this, these people tend to add to the simple gospel or take away from it. And John deals with that. Let's look at John chapter, not chapter, but verse 7 and 8. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up, follow along with me here. We're just going to jump right into it. Uh, it won't take us long to get through these. It says this, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. There it is. The rejection of Jesus in the flesh, the rejection of the logos, the rejection of the word, the, the word of God in the flesh, the rejection of God coming in the flesh. They are deceivers, have gone out, that's important too, into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. It simply means they are against Christ. If they are teaching something other than what we taught, if you deny the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, that God was fully human and fully divine, then you are an antichrist and you are deceived and being a deceiver. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for. John says, we've worked hard for you to understand the truth. And if you listen to these people, you will lose what we've worked hard to work in you. And what will happen at that point is you will lose your salvation. Why? Because you've been deceived. You are now against Christ, not for him. Who are these people, the deceivers? John calls them deceivers, calls them antichrist. He says they went out into the world. Where did they go out from? Where do they come from? Are these just people outside the church who are just totally against God and are trying to wreck Christianity? No. John, when he says they went out, is referring to our churches. These are people who were part of the local church who decided to leave the authority, the leadership, and the orthodox teachings of the Jesus community, and they have gone out to establish their own ministry they're teaching things that are wrong. That's what John said. They've gone out from amongst our churches, from amongst Jesus followers, and they're teaching things that are wrong. They love Jesus, they taught Jesus, but either they were duped themselves, or they were blinded by their pride, or they were caught up in the greed of self-interest, financial gain. Because when you look at this time in history, there were really from the church three kinds of ministry. There, there were the apostles who oversaw the ministry, but then they had people who would go out, who would travel, plant churches, who would teach about Jesus in other communities. And what would happen is these people didn't have hotels. As a matter of fact, in that day, the hotels were dearly. It wasn't a good place to stay, so the people of the church would have them stay with them. And when it gets 
And so these traveling teachers would stay in the homes of the church people and teach in their church, but then you had people who stayed in one place and they became constant teachers of the local church. And this is what their world looked like. So when John's talking about these things, have that in mind. He says either they were blinded or some of them may have just been ignorant. It was innocent. They were just simply trying to explain something that's very complicated to understand. Whatever reason, we don't know exactly how they got to this place, but we do know that their teaching was wrong. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh. And it wasn't just bad because they didn't believe that, but they were teaching others. Teaching always elevates you to a higher standard. John says they won't confess. Maybe your Bible, this one here, this translation says acknowledge. They simply wouldn't confess or acknowledge that Jesus was fully God and fully human. John says that they wouldn't confess. And John did not want to have anything to do with them. As a matter of fact, Serentius was one of the common people we know from history. He's not in Scripture, but we know from the other writings of, of uh, some of the people that are early, our earliest church fathers who walked and knew John wrote about this. They wrote about one time where John was in the same town as Serentius, and this Serentius was teaching these things that Jesus wasn't fully human. And John had gone into a bathhouse, and Serentius went into the bathhouse. Now, if you know what that means, back then they didn't, you know, you want to take a bath today, you go to your bathroom, turn on the water, and take a bath, right? They didn't have that then. So all the guys would go to one place, and they kind of wash, dude, you know, I don't think I'd want to do that. Hopefully it was running water, moving water. Uh, but all the guys were there, and John sees Serentius, and there's this story about how John made this comment about Serentius, and literally jumped up and ran out of the bathhouse, because he was afraid that the place might actually fall in because Serentius was there. That's how important it was to John. That's how important it was. Maybe John was just overreacting, right? I mean, maybe John's just thinking too much about this. John, come on, it's a complicated thing to think of Jesus as human and God and, and all this, but John, come on, man. Maybe you're overreacting to all this. Why are you being so difficult? And then, you know, they love Jesus. Ain't that enough? Why is Jesus being God in the flesh so important to us? Why is the incarnation and the theology and the understanding and the doctrine around that so important to us? Because of this. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 18. The Hebrew writer says this. Since the children, you and me, children of God, have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in their humanity. God became human. So that, listen, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Death only happens, and this is 
lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helped. Get that? Surely Jesus didn't just come and become flesh to help angels. No. For surely say, but Abraham's descendants. Flesh. Human. Next verse. For this reason, he had to be made like us. Like his brothers and sisters in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Last verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those being tempted. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came who came You've heard me say this many times. When we talk about theology, you can carry out the person of Jesus and this idea of incarnation this way. Jesus became, God became blank so that I might become blank. Jesus became flesh so that I might become divine. Jesus became pain so that I might be Jesus became suffering so that I might become, get it? How important is it that Jesus is incarnate? How important is it that Jesus, God, became flesh in the person of Jesus? All salvation, all theology and doctrines around salvation We live in a world that wants to see Jesus as a teacher, as a prophet, as a religious rebel, as a revolutionary. Don't ever lose sight of this. Jesus is so much more. He is God in the flesh. He understands your flesh. He understands your pain. He understands your sickness. He understands your sin struggle. He was tempted in every way, but yet he remained perfect. Adam failed us. Adam sinned and broke the law. Adam broke the relationship with God. Jesus has been called the second Adam. He came and did it right. How important is the incarnation? Everything, theologically, Everything, belief system, everything that has to do with our salvation depends on it. See, as the Hebrew writer says, and see, the beauty is we need a person. We need more than a bull dying on a sacrificial altar. We need a person who died for us because people have sinned against God, and sin demands death of the flesh. So we need a person, a human, who is a substitute for us. A human who lived a perfect and a righteous life that he could then give to us this life that he has. We need him to be human. And we need him 
to be defined. That's what scripture teaches. That's what John was teaching. But John goes a little further. Verses 9 through 11. It says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Wow. John was really good at this. He, this is how he knows he's probably the Apostle John, because in 1 John he says this a lot. If you say that you have love, but you hate your neighbor, you don't have God. He says this a lot. He makes these big, bold statements. But you know, I guess the guy who laid his head on Jesus' shoulder and listened to the teachings of Jesus has the right to say something like this. He says, these people, these false teachers, they run ahead and does not continue. They say that they have God, but they don't. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, listen, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now, the church has misinterpreted this because they Sometimes we don't fully understand the culture and the context. Remember how I told you within the church they had these traveling teachers? John is not saying, Christians, that you should not entertain non-believers. John's not saying that you should withhold the hand of hospitality from people who don't think like you or believe like you or who don't even believe in God. No, if anything, you should extend your hand of hospitality to people. What John is saying is people who, who are within the church, traveling around, wanting more time, wanting more resources, wanting you to support them, and they are teaching Jesus in the flesh, God divine, Jesus divine. If they are getting ahead of this simple gospel, do not have them in your house. Do not turn them on the TV. Do not listen to their YouTube. If you get a hint that these people are not teaching the simple gospel that Jesus came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for us, was raised from the dead, and is Lord, Lord, King forever, run. And listen, don't build your life around that teaching. your mask on. What? Here, use mine. Just kidding. No, you'll need a mask. Put a mask on. We're going to have some fun this morning. Turn the lights up a little, Joe. Alright, Eric, come over here. You stay there. Cheryl's going to help. I need some more people. Come on. You all love this game telephone. Get out part, though. I mean, I know it's six feet, but you can hear within six. I, I want you like ten feet. But you go over there. You like sit right there, you sit in there, you all spread out. Yeah, Kelly, you be the last person over there, Kelly. We're gonna play telephone. Alright? So you don't know how telephone works, right? I'm gonna give a statement to him and he's gonna repeat it to her. Alright? And then she's gonna repeat it to you. 
better turn my mic off, though, and I'll tell you what it is. of the 
Chinese teacher was, okay, you got Jesus, but here's a little more. Okay, I understand good grace, and I understand that all you have to do is believe, but you got this Jewish thing going on, and Paul called them the Judaizers, and then you had these other people that weren't Jews, they were Greeks, and their, their mind, moral view was all entwined with all their stuff, and they began to add to the message. You do not need just Jesus, but you need Jesus and. To be a real Christian, you need to do this. Eat this way. Drink this way. These teachers were heaping on the people unnecessary requirements. They were adding to the message of Jesus. John called them wicked teachings. <clears throat> Paul and Galatians called the Judaizers dogs. And when they talked, he talked about circumcision. He said they might as well just go on and just do the whole thing. Made him mad. The teachings of these wicked men and women lured people away from the truth. The true teachings. These teachings lured people into believing that they needed more than just to believe and trust and follow Christ. It's good that you love Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. But there's something else that you need. These teachers went too far. And that's why John said they ran ahead. The actual Greek, and I didn't want to use this word for this, it has nothing to do with today's political system, but it actually is translated progressive. They were too progressive with the message of Jesus. Not that our faith shouldn't grow, not that churches shouldn't grow, not that we shouldn't expand our thoughts and grow in the love and truth of Jesus, but not so progressive that we begin to change the message. These teachers just went too far. They put unnecessary burdens on the people, false requirements, focus on things that were just not necessary to their salvation. Paul, as I said, called them Judaizers, Christians who taught that you still had to follow the Jewish laws and customs to be truly saved. If you deny the incarnation of Jesus, if you deny that he came in Flesh. You deny the father-son relationship as they were taught to us by Jesus. Your theology, listen, will leave you grabbing for human efforts to find your way to God. You do not need human efforts to find God. He saw us in our need. He saw us powerless, unable to do a thing about it. And there's nothing in this world that could turn that around. And Jesus saw us in our condition, and he had pity and mercy and compassion and gave us grace. And he loved us all the way to the cross. And that day, God died.
last two verses. And you know, sometimes in these little epistles, we, we go past the introductions and the salutations and the greetings. We're like, oh, it's just kind of emotional, mushy-mushy stuff. You know, hey, I love you guys. I'm praying for you. Right? Or, hey, tell, tell us so-and-so hi. And we, we pass through that stuff. But it's very important that in the context of the first 11 verses of 2 John, that you understand this as well. I have much to write to you. I've only got one little piece of parchment, and i got to get it all on one little piece of parchment, and I said it, but there's so much more I want to tell you. There's so much more I want to teach you. There's so much more I want for you. But it says, I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, Hope to be in the heart of you again. I hope to be connected with you. I hope to be in the flesh with you. I hope to shake your hand, hug your body, kiss your cheek. I hope to talk to you. I hope to see you. I want to visit with you. I want to be face to face with you. With a mask on. Listen, so that your joy may be complete. There's joy in the, in the incarnation of Jesus and the embodiment of him in the community When we come together, when we join hands, when we gather around the text, when we sing songs together, when we help a brother and sister in need, when we do community on the truth and in love, Christ is embodied in us, and we are the church. We're his people. We're a movement that nothing can stop us. John knows this. He understands this. John sees that Jesus' embodiment is an important theological truth that impacts everything else in our life. The fact that God will become flesh tells us that our embodied community is the necessary context it's the necessary context for practicing truth love. And when you move out on your own and you leave the body common grace, reflecting the truth that's been revealed to us in 2 John. And here is really the, the, the whole message in the statement. We will understand and we will walk in truth better the more that we are engaged in the religion. The more that we pray to God, read our Bibles service together, sing together, share our lives together. We are the embodiment of Jesus on earth. I believe Paul put it this way. You are the body of Christ. Here's the truth. 
better together. Right? Amen? Amen? We're better together. I wanted to close this. Our worship team is going to come up and we're going to close this song. But before we do, I want us to stand. And as a community of faith, I want us to make a testimony this morning. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. Because this is the creed that just tells it how it is. It's been hashed out. It's the orthodoxy of the church. It's, it's what we believe. It's the dogma of the church. You can't change it. You can tweak this, uh, you can tweak doctrines. You can have a doctrine that looks at things just a little bit differently, but you can't change this. If you change this, you're no longer Christian. If you don't believe this, you just moved out and ahead of the teachings of Christ. Here it is. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. By the way, that's not a capital C, that's the Catholic as in the whole church, okay? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. That's what